Advent is a fun time of year. It is when we remember uh, the coming of the birth of Jesus Christ. When we said goodbye to Jeremiah last week in our series, Navigating Uncertainty, it was about 586 when Jeremiah told the people of Judah that God will allow you to come back to the land of Judah. Now, the beginning of this fulfillment came when Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, conquered Babylon and instituted a new policy. All the nations that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered could go back to their homelands, but they would have to pay tax and they couldn't raise an army. So in 539 B.C., the people uh, of Judah began to come back to their homeland. There they waited for the fulfillment of Jeremiah's other prophecies that God would establish a new covenant implemented by the righteous branch, who is Jesus Christ. They waited over 500 years. Waiting is hard. We don't like waiting. There was an accident on the freeway last week, and uh, traffic slowed to a crawl, and I, I wondered to myself, how long will I have to wait? Have you ever, ever had this happen? You, you call a business, and they say, can I put you on hold? It's a rhetorical question. You can't say no. And then you wait for like 20 minutes. Did you ever listen to a sermon that just goes on and on? You think this will never end. If that's never happened to you, just wait. I have a lot to say today. When's the last time you went to Disneyland? You wait in lines there forever. I mean, they actually put up signs that say like, from this point on, it'll be another three days before you get on the Jungle Cruise. Wouldn't it be great if we had signs like that in real life? From this point on, another six months until you meet your spouse. From this point on, ten years until your mate grows up. From this point on, four years until your kids are out of the house. When Jory and I began having kids, we have nine, uh, I, I thought that when they graduated from high school, we were basically done. But then four of our kids chose to go to Portland State, and they lived at home. One went to the University of Portland and lived at home. And several of our kids have lived with us after they graduated from college or graduate school. We've loved it. It's never been a problem. Uh, we all hate to wait. I saw a YouTube of a guy who went into a restaurant. It was a nice restaurant. He ordered a meal, and it took so long that he called for a pizza to be delivered. When it was delivered, all the other diners cheered this guy that refused to wait so long for his stuff. After 500 years of waiting, Jesus finally comes. Turn to Luke if you have a Bible. Uh, the Gospel of Mark and John introduces to Jesus as a fully grown man. Luke and Matthew tell us about the birth of Christ and the backstory. Here are the questions I want to ask today. How can we know with certainty that Jesus is the Son of God? How can we know that what Luke wrote about Jesus is true? How can we know that what we read in the Bible is true? And here's the answer I hope to give. We can know that what Luke wrote about Christ 
is true. I want to suggest three reasons you can know with certainty that what Luke wrote is true and what the Bible says is true. One, Luke used eyewitness testimony. Look at what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now Luke's at a disadvantage. He's not an eyewitness. Matthew was one of the disciples. He wrote an eyewitness gospel. Mark wrote for Peter, one of the disciples. He wrote an eyewitness gospel. John was one of the disciples. He wrote as an eyewitness. So how did Luke develop a gospel that could be reliable? He interviewed lots of people. He interviewed the disciples, the women who followed Jesus. In fact, he interviewed so many people that he tells stories about people that are not found in the other three gospels. He tells about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth was probably an aunt, maybe a sister to Mary. Uh, he tells about Simeon and Anna, two older people who were at the temple when Jesus was brought in to be circumcised. He interviewed uh, people, you know, he focused on women and those who were socially downcast. Uh, eyewitness testimony is often some of the most important testimony in a court of law. Mildred, the church gossip, and self-appointed monitor of the church's morals, was constantly sticking her nose in other people's business. Most people didn't like her meddling, but they were afraid of her enough that they kept silent. But she got into trouble when she encountered George. George was a new Christian, a new member of the church, and she accused him of being an alcoholic because she saw his pickup parked outside a local bar. George just looked at her. He didn't explain himself. He didn't uh, defend himself. He just walked off. Well, that night, he quietly parked his pickup outside Mildred's house. He did the same thing the next night. And Mildred came to him and said, George, you got to stop parking your pickup outside my house. People are starting to talk. He says, now you can understand that where I park my pickup doesn't at all indicate what I'm doing. Luke interviewed people who didn't just think they saw something. They were actually there when Jesus was born. He lived and he died. We can believe him because he used eyewitness testimony. The second reason we can believe what Luke said is true is because he carefully investigated the life of Christ. Here's what he says. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We think Theophilus was a governor of one of the Roman provinces or a high government official. They would have a hard time believing Jesus is the Son of God uh, as Romans because he died as a common criminal. So Luke's going to tell him why he can believe. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Many people do not believe the Bible because they begin with the assumption that people of, re of faith do not report history accurately. They assume that faith caused biblical writers to embellish on actual fact and delve into pious myth-making. They exercise a cultural imperial imperialism of the Enlightenment that assumes that it's only in the last 200 years we've learned how to write history accurately and that 
uh, old uh, writers were uh, ignorant of these things, freely making things up and calling it history. You have to understand that I am white, hot, passionate about this subject. I went to Lewis and Clark College, and all my professors in history, political science, and religion taught that the Bible is not true that it was written years after the fact when there were no eyewitnesses around to question what they were writing, the stuff that they were just making up. This is what I was taught by day, and then by night I was leading teenagers to Christ in Beaverton Young, uh, young Life. I thought, wait, if none of this stuff really happened, what am I telling students? So I began at that point what has become a lifelong study about the reliability of the Bible. I encountered the same sort of thinking the 25 years I worked in the Presbyterian Church USA. Many of my fellow pastors did not believe the Bible is true and didn't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ, and you two say, yeah, that's what I was taught in college. The Bible's just a compilation of stories. They didn't really happen. It's ironic that some of the people who dismiss the Bible as being made up after the fact are more than happy to embrace Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, written in 1980. It's a rewriting of American history from a Marxist viewpoint. He claims that the U.S. was founded not by noble people, but by villains who wanted to oppress Indians, slaves, and women. He teaches that the U.S. is an evil country responsible for nearly all the ills in the world over the last 200 years. In contrast, Zinn never mentions the 70 million Chinese who were killed during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong's Chinese Communist Party. He never mentions the 30 million Russians that were killed in the gulags under Joseph Stalin's Soviet Communist Party. Zinn's book is regularly assigned by college professors across our country. Increasingly, it's being used in high schools. So modern writers rewrite history and give that to our students. That's fine. Then they accuse biblical writers of making up history. Remember, people often accuse you of doing exactly what they're doing. Assuming that Luke is passionately committed to promoting Christ does not at all mean that he'll falsify the facts. Often such a person will work all the harder to get the story straight. Some of the most reliable and detailed reporters of the Nazi Holocaust were Jews who wanted to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. Luke, the writer of the third gospel, goes to great lengths to show that he's giving us an accurate history of the life of Jesus. He carefully investigated the life of Christ. His gospel is not something he casually wrote on a napkin in a restaurant. Sir William Ramsey, one of the finest archaeologists ever to have lived, writes, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. A third reason we can believe that Luke's account of the life of Christ is true is because he was supernaturally inspired by God. Look at what Peter says. 
Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, Luke did not make this stuff up out of his head. He was inspired by, the, by God. He makes the same claim for all the writers of the New Testament and the writers of the Old Testament. They were all carried along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote. So that what they wrote, we can trust to be accurate and true and without error. One reason some people do not believe the Bible is because they begin with an anti-supernatural bias. We've all grown up being taught philosophical naturalism. That is, only what you see is what there is. There is no supernatural. Some theologians begin with the assumption that miracles do not happen. They assume the miracles attributed to Jesus and the apostles can no longer command the assent of those of us who have seen the heavens through Galileo's telescope. Since they rule out supernatural phenomena, any record of supernatural events in the Bible must be thrown out as inauthentic. This rules out the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ, Christ's miracles, and the resurrection. Anything Jesus says about these things must be thrown out as foisted on him by the early church who loved and worshipped him so much that only some kind of deification of him could capture their ideas. They also rule out the possibility of Jesus predicting the future. So anything Jesus said about the future that came to be, they say, oh, that was written after the fact. They leave us with a, a Jesus who has been virtually stripped of his divine nature, his atoning death and resurrection, and a Bible that is nothing more than the wishful thinking of unenlightened people. But not so fast. The Bible is filled with prophecies that were foretold tens or hundreds of years before the fact that have been fulfilled. This suggests what the Bible claims for itself, that it is supernaturally imposed. Louis Lapidus grew up as a Jewish boy in Newark, uh, New Jersey. The Messiah was never mentioned in his family. It never came up. When he was 17, his parents got a divorce. It stabbed a hole in whatever faith he held. He wondered, where's God when you need him? Well, after high school, he was drafted and shipped to Vietnam. He survived, and he came back, and it began a whole period of, uh, of searching, uh, alcohol, drugs, Buddhism. One day, walking on the L.A. Strip, a street evangelist mentioned the name of Jesus, and Louis gave his stock answer, I'm Jewish. And the man said, do you know the prophecies about the Messiah? Well, that caught Lapides off guard. He'd never heard about them. And the man began to uh, quote Hebrew scriptures that Louis had heard as a young boy quoting the coming of the Messiah. The man said to him, he gave him a Bible and he said, read this and ask the God of Abraham if Jesus is the Messiah. So he read the whole Old Testament. He was fascinated to find over four dozen predictions about the Messiah. 
that he would be descended from Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, descendant of Jacob, uh, come from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. The Psalms foretold his death, that his, uh, his hands and his feet would be pierced, even though the crucifixion hadn't even been invented at that point. When he reached Isaiah 53, he was stopped cold. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Jesus went through the whole crucifixion like one from whom people hide their faces as he was despised. And we held him in lowest. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. Uh, people thought that because he was crucified on the cross, he was being punished by God because God was not happy with him. Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Not his own. He never sinned. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Remember when he was uh, on trial before Pilate? Pilate was amazed that he didn't answer any of his accusers. When he was whipped and when he was on the cross and people said, hey, if you're the Son of God, come down. Jesus never answered a word. He was like a lamb. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Remember, he was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He was a wealthy man. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Lepides was stunned to find scriptures that were written 700 years <clears throat> before the fact about the rejection and pain the Messiah would endure. The Bible is filled with prophecies, specific enough that they couldn't have just happened by chance. It was foretold that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, come from the tribe of Judah, be born in Bethlehem, be called out of Egypt, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. On the cross, he would die without any bones getting broken and rise again on the third day. Lepidius was so shocked that he decided to read the New Testament for the first time. He opened to Matthew. Matthew's initial words leaped off the page. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Louis thought, my goodness, he's from my people. One night when he was a group of friends in the Mojave Desert, he went off by himself and he prayed. He says, God, I want Jesus to come into my life and change me. I have messed up my life so badly. I don't know what I'm asking him to do, but I need him in my life. The Bible records many other prophecies. The prophet Daniel foretells four kings rising in Persia, the last angering the Greeks. A Greek ruler would then rise and conquer the world, and his empire would be divided in four. That was fulfilled by Alexander the Great. 
In Ezekiel 25, we read the prophecy about Tyre being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar with other kings joining in. They would lay the city bare like a rock and, and fishermen would, would open their nets on top of it. The debris from the destruction would be thrown into the sea and it would never again be rebuilt. That's exactly what has happened. Last week, Chris Quinn showed us many prophecies Jeremiah spoke about the destruction of Babylon, all of which were fulfilled. I'll review a few of them. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. Now, Jeremiah spoke this 64 years before Babylon was destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. This was before an alliance had even been formed by those countries. There's no way he could have made this up out of his mind unless he was supernaturally inspired by God. Next, Jeremiah foretells how Babylon will be destroyed. A drought on her waters, they will dry up. When Jeremiah said Babylon will be destroyed, everybody inside is shaking their heads saying, no way. It was the biggest city in the world. They had these huge walls around it. If you got through the first uh, 20-foot wall, then you would face another 10-foot wall. There was no way, they said, this city could be overthrown. And the Euphrates River uh, flowed into it. They had an elaborate canal system. Well, in 539 B.C., uh, Cyrus had the brilliant idea of diverting the Euphrates River so that his troops could walk into Babylon on dry riverbed. And that's exactly what they did. One night when the king and the, the nobles were, were drunk from partying, they walked in on dry riverbed, killed the king, took over the city without a battle. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken. Well, that's exactly what happened. And then he talks about the wall. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. The people exhaust themselves for nothing. He's saying, all this work you're doing, building these walls and these, these gates that were made out of wood, they're going to be destroyed. You're wasting your time. The nation's labor is only fuel for the flames. This was fulfilled in 330 B.C. when Alexander destroyed Babylon. Remember, when Cyrus captured Babylon, they didn't, they didn't destroy anything. They took it without a battle. So desert creatures and hyenas will live there, and there the owl will dwell. It will never again be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. So no one will live there. No people will dwell in it. Babylon has never been rebuilt. Jeremiah could not have possibly written these things out of his own mind unless he was supernaturally inspired by God. The prophecy he gave about uh, Alexander the Great was given 274 years before Alexander destroyed Babylon. The Quran has only one or two prophecies, and they are far less specific. The Bible has dozens of them. That's why we can believe the Bible. That's why we can believe Luke. He was supernaturally inspired by God. We can know that what Luke wrote about Christ is true. I encourage you to use our journals this month. Uh, if you do that, you will read all about the birth of Christ. Or if you just want to read the Bible, read uh, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, 
we can know that we're not just celebrating this Christmas traditions, but we're remembering the birth of the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the only hope for the world. And if you've never invited Jesus into your life, you can do so right now as we pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you inspired Luke to write about Christ. And we can know that what he wrote is true because he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. We can know in the entire Bible that what we read is true. And we can build our faith around it. If you've never uh, invited Christ into your life, you can do so right now. Say, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I need you to forgive my sins. Come in and do so and be Lord of my life. If you already know Christ is your Lord, tell him. I can see that the Bible is true, and I want to read it this week. Spend time in it every day. You pray. Lord God, thank you that we can know that your word is true and we can read it knowing that we're hearing from you directly and that what we're reading is accurate. Uh, and so help us to do that. Spend time in it this week. In Jesus' name we pray.